You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Opioid addiction and related deaths disproportionately affect both poor, rural, white communities and middle-class, suburban white communities. Also, many addicts are introduced to opioids through prescription drugs, which seem to be a little more socially acceptable than, say, crack cocaine. Despite the similarities between the spread of opioid addiction and that of crack in the 1980s and early 90s, public opinion and public policy in response to the two have been really and profoundly different. Today's mostly white opioid addicts are considered part of a public health crisis, and maybe that's right. But black cocaine addicts in urban ghettos were met with an all-out war on drugs, prosecuted, incarcerated, and ignored. And that's still being waged today with huge social consequences. What is at the root of this double standard, and how does this color our own perceptions of addiction? Is it less of a race and class issue and more of a sign of progress based on what we know from the war on drugs? I'm going to spend the rest of the show talking about this issue, this double standard of the opioid addiction and the war on drugs. And joining me now to kick off that conversation is Keith Humphreys, a psychiatry professor at Stanford University, former policy advisor at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy during the Obama administration. Keith, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start off with the the, the big question here. Is this a double standard? Are we dealing with the opioid crisis in a substantially different way than we did with, for example, the explosion of crack in urban communities? And if so, why is that true? Well, I mean, if you look at American history, we've had repeated examples where some group that, that is uh, the target of prejudice um, has substance use problems, and the society really cracks down. And it goes way back. You know, Irish immigrants are all alcoholics. They're going to destroy decent New England society. Chinese immigrants, they're bringing opium uh, smoking and going to corrupt our youth. Mexican workers from Mexico are, are bringing in marijuana, and they're going to be a threat. And certainly black Americans experienced that both with the crack cocaine epidemic and the heroin epidemic heroin. before that. Yes. Yeah. And, and the way that the cultural narrative, when it's in those groups is that they deserve these problems because they're immoral, they're weak, they're pleasure-seeking, and therefore the response of government should be punitive. And we haven't seen that with this much more white epidemic. And I, th- and I think a key re- it's not the only reason, but I think a key reason is that, um, you know, that these are, uh, you know, middle-class people, powerful people, white people, and uh, the former, you know, we would have repudiated all of them if they were minorities, right. but because they're not, um, people are compassionate. What, what about the question of prescription versus street sales of, of drugs? I mean, opioid addiction, the gateway to that is not something that you're doing by going to the corner and, and you know, plunking down $10 to, to get something that you do in your home. It is by going to the doctor and getting that doctor to, to prescribe you something often through leg- for legitimate reasons. I mean, if, if you're in a car accident, for instance, um, uh, and, and need that kind of medication, a, a doctor will prescribe it to you. You may then become addicted to it. Is that part of the explanation here, or does that not sufficiently wipe away that, that double standard? 
You know, that that probably is part of the explanation there. And that happens all the time, unfortunately. Um, people are, um, you know, coming with a, uh, an injury and then are, are, are dependent on these chemicals. But I, I think it actually interfaces with something else. I, I was in Detroit on the, on the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, working on mm-hmm. the Lower East Side on the Cass Corridor every day. Uh-huh. And the, the, the other aspect of that epidemic was it was so violent, um, yes. you know, and, and when there's violence, everybody gets scared. Uh, and not just, you know, middle-class white suburbanites, uh, you know, uh, black residents in the city were scared and they demand a crackdown. And the fact that, you know, you got crack from people who had a gun in their belt and you get prescription opioids by someone who wears a white coat and has a stethoscope has made distribution much less violent. And that's partly why I think uh, another reason why, in addition to the racial aspect, that, that the reaction now is more measured and more public health oriented is that we're, we're not reading, opening the paper every day as we did back in those days and seeing, you know, somebody else got shot in a, in a drug transaction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is uh, Keith Humphreys. He's a psychiatry professor at Stanford University, former policy advisor at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy during the Obama administration. We're talking about the difference in the way that we have dealt with the opioid crisis from the way that we have dealt with the explosion of crack or heroin in urban communities. Opioid addiction is affecting mostly uh, people in rural white and middle class suburban white communities. Those other drug problems affected black people mostly in poor communities. Are we seeing that racial difference translate to a policy difference? Uh, Are we seeing it translate to a cultural difference in the way that we see these problems? Give us a call. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. Are you someone who has been affected by either the opioid or the crack epidemic in uh, in this country? Uh, are you someone who's been affected by the war on drugs? Talk, uh, talk to us about how these things have affected your life here in Metro Detroit. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. Also tell us what you think the policy imperatives should look like for the opioid crisis? Should they be compassionate? Should they be about public health? Should we also maybe adopt a more public health-oriented stance toward other kinds of drugs and the addictions that come with them? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Max from New Center on Twitter says, the government designed the war on drugs to maliciously target people in black communities. Uh, If you are a regular listener of this show, you know that's something we talk about all the time. Uh, A guest of ours uh, that we uh, are big fans of, Heather Ann Thompson, a history professor at the University of Michigan, has written uh, a very important book about the history of drug policy and uh, and get tough policies in in the United States uh, and their origins in uh, in the uprising at the Attica prison in New York in the in the 1970s. Uh, also, Corey on Twitter says, "In a war, there are allies and enemies. Turning addicts into enemies is not the way to solve any problem. The stigma over addiction has to go." Has to go. Again, uh, 313-577-1019 is the the number on the phones. Let's go to Anthony and Howell. Anthony, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hello, and thanks for taking my call. Sure. You know, we had an opioid epidemic in the 70s with heroin and, you know, black communities and then crack in the 80s. But, you know, we were treated with convictions and prison sentences, whereas now, you know, it's compassion and, and, and treatment you know, for the same thing. And just like, you know, the guy said on Facebook, cocaine was put into our communities to turn into crack. And they also gave them the guns, you know, to protect sure. that investment. Right. Uh, Anthony, that's a, those are, those are wonderful points. I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you, you called and, and, and made them. Uh, Keith Humphreys, talk about the, the response to the, the explosion of crack and, and heroin both before and after it. Uh, and, and the inability, I suppose, of, or maybe unwillingness of the government to, to, to own up to its own responsibilities in those cases. I mean, as Anthony was saying, there's a real connection between international U.S. policy and the inflow of drugs into uh, the United States and into those communities. There's also a real connection between U.S. policy on guns and the violence that we see in those communities. If the, if the approach was to get tough, why didn't we get tough on those things? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I mean, there's plenty of hypocrisy to grow, go around. I mean, the, the, another way you know race and culture work into how uh, drug problems are understood is it's very common that Americans blame people in other countries for our drug use. Right. So you know, it's the fault of the Colombians, it's the fault of the Mexicans, um, and and things. Of course, we it, it's us. I mean, we we use them. So um, if we didn't buy them, they wouldn't make them. Yeah. Uh, but we do. But we don't want to take that responsibility on. And on the gun issue, you know, I agree absolutely that. And I, I think this now about violence in Mexico, you know, the, the most helpful thing we could do is, you know, close the, you know, thousands of gun outlets that are just across the border in, in our country. But, you know, we let them go down there. And um, as a result, there's a great deal of violence and, and no responsibility taken by the government for, you know, this is why this is so violent. It's very easy to get guns. And people, you know, when people are under the influence of substances, they are, you know, more impulsive. They, 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 they are particularly stimulants like cocaine. They are more prone to be aggressive. And, you know, filling their communities with guns is going to be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Let's go back to the phones here. Jim in Trenton, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, how you doing? Yes. Great. Go ahead, Jim. Yes, yeah, so I, I was going to talk about uh, the difference between... I, I think I can see why people look at opioid addiction when it's pill form differently than like something like crack or heroin. Uh, I, I actually dated someone that, that did crack and heroin. And, uh, and, and the, the way, you know, like I've taken Vicodin pills and I've been, you know, injured before... The difference in how it makes you act, like if you, if you do heroin, you sleep all day, you don't do anything with your life. It's just it's, it's a horrible result. Same same with crack. It makes you it makes you hallucinate. It it, it just turns you into almost like a zombie. Wow. Uh, I, I think I can see why people uh, look differently at you know, like I, it's just because the result the effect it has on human beings is different. Uh, opioid you know opioid pills versus. Hard drugs. Yeah, uh, uh, Jim. Thank you very much for calling and and sharing that pretty personal story. But you're also making a really important point there, and I want to give Keith Humphreys a chance to answer that. Is is part of it the the difference in effects of these drugs on people's behavior? Does that also driving the difference in the way we react to it? Yeah, 
you know, that, that, that's definitely in the soup. And, you know, it, when, when we say race and culture and prejudice shape how we handle this problem, we, we need to hold that in our heads and at the same time admit that's not the only thing that shapes it. And part of this is based on, on a reality, exactly as the caller said. And, and I think, again, it goes back to violence. Um, you know, when people are on, on drugs, the, the stimulant-type drugs, methamphetamine, amphetamine, cocaine, they are more prone to be violent. Alcohol, too, by the way. Sure. And, and violence scare, is scary, and, and it's understandable people are, are afraid of violence, and we all want to be safe, and when, we, and when we see violence, we're more prone to pick up the phone and call the police, whereas when, if somebody's not functioning, um, you know, they're passing out at their, at their desk or, you know, in, in their car, um, we don't feel scared. We're more likely to feel worried, and then we call a doctor, mm-hmm. and that's, that's partly why, um, you know, the, the opioid epidemic, it seems more rational that the healthcare system is taking a lead role versus having police take a lead role. Yeah. Uh, Kanata Williams, who is uh, a, a pretty frequent guest on this show, but also a uh, professor uh, of African-American history at Wayne State University, says to us on Twitter, is another racial difference that blacks are prescribed pain, need, pain meds differently, less often and in lower doses than whites? Is that one of the things that's driving this uh, is that one of the things that's driving this difference as well. Yeah, yeah, that that's a very important observation. So, so there there are beliefs among physicians that um, uh, e- either that uh, African American patients are more likely to uh, sell the sell the pills, which is not true, or that there's also sort of folk belief that that black people are more resilient to pain, which is not true. Um, um, and those things may lead to less prescribing. And there is less prescribing uh, for the same injury to, to blacks than to whites. That's been found repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And this is one of maybe a rare case, maybe about the only case I can think of, where prejudice might have actually worked in favor of its target. Because, you know, certainly some black people were designed, denied pain relief they needed, but pro- probably also they were less likely to get the overprescription that um, you know, occurred with a lot of white patients and, and led them to become addicted. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for being here, uh, Keith Humphreys. This was a wonderful conversation, and we just sort of scratched the surface, I feel like, about a very important issue in our society. But I really appreciate uh, you being here on Detroit Today. Thanks very much. Take care. All right. Up next, we're going to continue our conversation about the war on drugs. We're going to talk with a law professor about the legal fallout of drug addictions in our society. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about the double standard between the way we see the opioid crisis in America and the way we have dealt with the war on drugs, drugs like heroin and crack cocaine for many decades. And joining us now to talk about the legal context of that double standard the legal fallout of drug addictions is Echo Yanka, who is a law professor at the Cardozo Law School of Law in New York. Echo, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, so talk about this this double standard and, and sort of the legal fallout of uh, drug addictions. Uh, what, what are we actually looking at here? Well, so to continue on some of the conversation you were having before, it's very obvious that um, – that our approach and our tone has been different from, you know, one of the most striking examples I remember is the presidential debates where, mind you, the Republican candidates all on stage one by one shared heartbreaking stories of addiction in their own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a party that you could have scoured top to bottom and not found such, you know, you would have had to find one story like that over the last generation and a half. And since, of course, one of the places in which we see the effects of imprisonment uh, most starkly is in federal resources. Federal prisoners make up the, uh, the bulk of, of, um, of drug prisoners. If the tone from the top is set differently, then, then we know that um, there'll be knockdown effects all the way down. Now, I can't say with certainty exactly how things are going to look. Um, one of the terrifying things is that we're in the middle of this storm. So, you know, when the tornado hits you, you don't have time to survey the damage quite yet. Um, so we don't know what the long-term effects will be, but it's very clear that we as a nation have decided to take a different effect, yeah. a different approach. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. And again, if you want to join us, 313 577 1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Let's go to Tisha in Livonia. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, this is a great conversation. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, my comment just said it is, is that, A, it's a great conversation. Um, and then I wanted to just mention that uh, even though it does seem nervous, like, the, I don't, I think that it's, a, that I, I'm sorry, I'm nervous. That's okay. Go I <laughs> just wanted to say that I noticed that although there is, seems to be a somewhat d- different response to the opioid opioid ep- epidemic. Mm-hmm. The response towards Mexicans mm-hmm. bringing in the drugs is still aggressive, very aggressive, so much aggressive. I think it helped, you know, really helped Trump become president. Sure. And that's huge. Yeah. Because I mean, there's a, I mean, what you're pointing out here is a prosecutorial difference on the side of distributors, right? Uh, drug dealers from Mexico are dealt with one way. Doctors who overprescribe opioids are sort of dealt with in a different context. Are our doctors, you know, mostly white or are they, you know, they're not mostly black, they're not mostly from Mexico? Well, there are shockingly few black doctors, but I I just... Thank uh, you, thank you, Tisha, for the the call and the point. That's a really important uh, distinction. Go ahead. It's a great uh, point. I just want to follow up on that. One of the things, and this isn't data, this is a, a story, so I want to be careful, but... One of the things I've had a chance to do is speak to people who've really lived through this. And I remember speaking to a federal judge in Miami who was saying how generations ago he was getting lots of money and lots of support for alternative treatment and alternative punishment for um, heroin. This was before the crack cocaine epidemic, the heroin epidemic of the 70s, um, until people in Miami um, were told or decided that heroin was mostly a Mexican problem. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he said he couldn't find a politician who would help him. He couldn't. I mean, the rhetoric changed overnight. And he said it was just very clear why the rhetoric changed. So um, Tish is exactly right. And that's why I say we don't know exactly how this is going to. We don't yet know the effects. Um, But look, uh, what's clear is that our intuitions and our empathy 
in the drug wars is too often tied up with who we imagine the the addicted are, who, right. and what race we imagine they, them to be. And, you know, time will tell if this kind of rhetoric is combined with more humane and more thoughtful drug policy, or if, as Tisha implies, we just tie our drug policy ever finer to punishing those we always want to punish anyway. Anyway, sure. Uh, uh, I, I want to talk about the scheduling of drugs, which I think plays some role here as as well. Are, are drugs scheduled properly from a public health standpoint uh, in this country, or does this also reflect uh, this this bias against the people we imagine use certain kinds of drugs and what we wanna what we wanna do to them. So look, our drug scheduling is crazy, and I, I don't say that because I'm a super smart doctor, right? <laughs> I say that because I do what I take most of us should do. I listen to super smart doctors. <laughs> right. um, you know, you you just have the decency to listen to those who know better. So, as most people know, um, marijuana is a ske- is scheduled the highest level of danger in in our drug policy. And there's no debate why this is. By the way, this is not a subtle. I you know, I'm not peddling interesting conspiracy theories. If you just look it up, there's a very clear record from our federal government, in particular uh, the FBI at a certain point, that said, we know marijuana is not dangerous, but it is a way of policing Hispanic farm workers. Mm -hmm. And then later on, it is a way of policing black communities, right? Look, um, I went to school in Ann Arbor. I am... um, you know, like many people who hit middle age, I am now becoming, I, I've gone from being a fanatical Wolverine to being something pathological, right? You know, right. I, I love it. I, I might I, I might be able to relate to that. You, you I don't know. know. <laughs> so, you know, Ann Arbor is in a helicon glow for me. Um, but let's be honest, right? If what we really cared about was policing marijuana, SWAT teams would invade Ann Arbor, right? right? SWAT teams would invade Madison. SWAT teams would invade Austin, Texas, and UCLA. What we care about is using the way in which drugs are scheduled in order to control certain communities. Yeah, yeah, that's really an interesting point. Uh, let's go to uh, Jake in Detroit. Jake, welcome to hey, Detroit good, Today. Good morning. Go I really appreciate the opportunity to participate. And the reason that I called is because listening to the conversation, I have two points that just bitterly disappoint me when we get onto the subject of, of opiate abuse and, and enforcement, is, which is, number one, you know, I'm, I'm a, a white 50-something professional, highly educated person, suffered severe back injury early on in my life, and opiates, uh, I, I, yeah, I used opiates um, that were prescribed by a pain clinic that pretty much everybody going into that pain clinic was there because they were looking for pain control, not to be, you know, not to become some high on or something. So, uh, you know, we get lost in the shuffle because we have people who obviously begin to abuse these drugs, number one, because every time some new legislation or some new politician, you know, makes it a priority, all right. of a sudden there's this blanket response yeah. to either crack down on everybody or, you know, whatever. That is the first thing that I wanted to bring up. Yeah. And the second but, Jake, issue is Jake, that- I, Jake, I want to I want to get to uh, one more call before I get But I, I think that's a really great point. I think we have somebody who has sort of a related point, Barika in Detroit. Go ahead. 
Hi. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you for having this conversation. I am a doctor, and I wanted to comment also on what Jake is saying. That's a, a big point is that people do get lost in the shuffle. As a physician, we are trying to help our patients manage their pain, treat addiction, and also we are put under pressure from multiple factors. For example, patient satisfaction is important. So if you don't give your patient what you want, then your CEO is breathing down your breath, you know, breathing down your neck mm-hmm. because you're not prescribing them the opiates, but they're going to give you a poor satisfaction score if you don't do what they want. Yeah. So I think that doctors are put in a very precarious situation trying to figure out what's best for the patient, That's a really how to manage expectations, yeah. and it, it does become very difficult. Yeah. Barika, I'm, I'm really glad you called, and uh, thank you for those comments. Uh, Echo, Yanka, we have about a minute left. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. The, the, the doctor context here is sort of tricky, but part of that is because of this scheduling uh, that we were talking about before. Yeah, I just, I'll close with two points. One is... Um, I think the doctor makes a great point, and there's a cruel irony that one of the things, on, on top of many things that is that are wrong with our healthcare system, but one of the things, as your last um, as your last guest mentioned, that has led to so much opioid abuse is that doctors were so quick to prescribe opioids, well-meaning doctors, I should rush to say, um, to white patients versus black patients, um, and took black pain more, or white pain more seriously. Yeah, um, yeah. So. And the second is just to say, look, none of this conversation is to say that we should delight or or swallow easily this devastating addiction wave. It's it's just the hope that we learn from the ways in which we've been um, yeah. cruel before right. and, and be more human going in the future. Sure. Okay, Echo Yanka, professor of law at Cardozo School of Law in New York. Thank you for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. See you tomorrow.